26 of Rankin Review. This episode, your host and random Canadian Larry Parsons and his guest Robbie Tanner will be looking at six horror films that use frozen landscapes and the cold to their advantage. Living in Canada and specifically in the middle of Saskatchewan, cold is something that Robbie and I know a lot about. As usual, I would warn everyone listening that there will be spoilers for the movies discussed as well as coarse language. I'd like to thank you for supporting Rank and Review, and if you'd like to help us out, you can seek us out on Facebook, like the page, leave a comment, and subscribe to us in iTunes in the podcast feed. It is free, and if you give us a good review and write a little review to us, uh, it helps other people find the show. I don't know where you are when you're listening to this, but if you're warm, you'll enjoy and relax while listening to tales of people suffering in terrible, terrible cold. And if you're cold, you might want to grab yourself a blanket. Sit back, relax, and enjoy episode 26 of Rankin Review. All right, well, so this is going to be episode 26 of Rankin Review, and I've got my dear friend uh, Robbie Tanner in my filthy garage with me to discuss six horror movies set in frozen landscapes. Uh, Tanner and I have done so much theater together that I regale him with stories about plays that we were in together. (laughs) Did I ever tell you about the time that I did this play, uh, James and the Giant Peach? (laughs) Yes, I was in it. (laughs) That's right, you were there, sorry. Uh, to be fair, I, I did almost die of heat stroke in that production. Um, so yeah, I roped you into doing my podcast. Um, how do you feel about the horror genre as a rule? Is it is it something that's typical to your taste, or as a rule, if you're going to the cinema, would you pick horror over something else? Or <laughs> I don't necessarily uh, go for movies based on genre. Uh, I go based on whether I think they're going to be good or not. The ones when they get too detailed, they go too far, or somehow they <clears throat> they explain too much then they become almost campy as opposed to uh, real horror. Like Paranormal Activity, for example, certainly the first one, mm-hmm. didn't over-explain it. And it just was it, unsettling. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and lots of the jump scares and things like that, but, but uh, some real craftsmanship leading up to the jump scare, <clears throat> I thought. And then they kind of, uh, I think I saw up to the third one, and, but, but then the third one, it kind of, it kind of became this thing where they were explaining too much this community and what the rules are behind the this supernatural world, and it delved into it too much. There, was, there this, was another one. 
Yeah, I, there's this, I call this problem like the Matrix flaw. The the first Matrix movie is amazing because they could have just don't left know, it alone. Yeah, we yeah. don't know what's going on, and we're introduced to the world, and Neo becomes the one, and then we wait four or five years or whatever it is for the sequel with bated breath. But once Neo is the one. It's not as interesting. Right. It's it's getting to that point, right? Yeah. So So you already know that heading in. Yeah, exactly. But sequels are a tricky thing to do just <clears> generally. <throat> anyway, we should mention the six movies we're going to talk about today. I think one of the great things about this list of movies actually is that you got a pretty you got a lot of different styles. I mean, I you could fairly call all of these horror movies, but I think that that's where a lot of the comparisons is begin and end as far as their approach to how they're going to try and work your nerves. We have uh, a sort of cruel fate horror movie called Frozen, which is directed by Adam Green about a couple or three unlucky skiers who get stuck on a on a lift. Uh, we have yet another Nazi zombie movie, <laughs> <laughs> Dead Snow. This is not the first z- Nazi zombie to be reviewed on this podcast. <laughs> um, we have uh, a very well respected slasher movie called Cold Prey. Um, about a, a group of another group of skiers who get sort of sidelined, but one of them gets a broken leg, and they take refuge in a remote, abandoned ski lodge. And guess what? Bad shit starts to happen. We have a creepy ghost story film called Windchill, starring Emily Blunt, and uh, we have a based off of a graphic novel, Thirty Days of Night, sort of vampires sieging an Alaskan town. And last but not least, we have The Last Winter which is directed by a man named Larry Fessenden. That's the list of movies that we're looking at. So you got everywhere between screaming, ripping your guts out, zombies, to sort of <laughs> uh, situational survival horror, to sort of slow nerve working into the atmosphere type of uh, films. Is there an approach that you prefer? or, or, or? Well, like I said, the ones that... And, and I'm not saying that it's easy or it's trivial... Um, and, and I don't mean to be too disparaging, but some people are just better at it than others at creating the lead in right. to, to whatever, uh, scene climax or the arc of the story as a whole. And then sometimes it's kind of like, uh, we think we need to put this in. It seems like we need to have this opening scene to establish something that really doesn't matter later <laughs> on. <laughs> It's it's weird. I mean, I guess the the first act can be tricky. I guess it depends on, on where your script is at. If you're uh, you know if you're in the machinations of telling the story, or if you're busy killing time until the creature shows up. Right. And there's those two different approaches, <laughs> you know. Um, and sometimes it really does feel like the wheels are spinning, and just so geez, get these boring people to the cottage in the woods already. Yes. But other times it's like okay, we're getting to know these people, we like these people, and we're learning a little bit about them uh, before they start to die. You know. And that's. And that's sort of, I think, sort of a, a necessary component of any well-crafted story is if, if you want... It, it certainly takes the stakes up if you care about the characters and you sympathize with them and then something bad happens to them. <laughs> uh, just one more thing before we get into the reviews I wanted to bring up. The, the theme of cold in this. The, big, the handiest aspect that it has as far as the horror genre is isolation. And living where we live in Saskatchewan, this is, you know, a lot of these movies could easily have been set here. <laughs> um, but for me, what, what I associate with the cold theme is uh, a, a sort of less to do with, like, real scares and more to do with just the fact that because so much of our time here in Saskatchewan where we live, we are 
freezing. <laughs> it is freezing cold. And because I'm not a sportsman, during the winter months is where I would hide in my darkened basement room and watch hours and hours of, of horror movies. <laughs> and uh, in a way, it justified my couch potatoism because it's 45 below outside. <laughs> you know? And ironically, they make winter more palatable. There's, they, they somehow take some of the edge of the, uh, the horror away from the winter itself. It's nice that it's summer as we're recording this, so we can have a detached view to all of these horrifying <laughs> yes, exactly. situations. But um, a lot of the stuff that they're portraying in here uh, is is stuff that I know. I know what it's like to be out in the freezing cold and shivering. So I can tell if those performances are real or not. <laughs> you exactly. Know? And it's not easy to make winter more horrifying than it is. <laughs> than it already is. So much of our, so many months of our, our hours in so many of our months of the year are spent putting on and taking off clothes and wondering, you know, certainly when you're putting on, if it's enough. Yeah. <laughs> and I imagine when you were, when you had your little guys, like, especially concerned about it. Like, yeah, oh, Are they going to be warm enough in this? So yeah, winter is its own hardship and people who don't, haven't lived through one really don't get it. The weather will kill you. Yeah. Uh, the we, don't, we don't need wild animals and we don't need... <laughs> Even if you're not an outdoorsman, if you're not a, you know, someone who owns a skidoo or likes to go cut a hole in the ice and go fishing, um, I think living through Saskatchewan winter just toughens you. <laughs> a I like to bit. think so. I, not that we don't bitch constantly <laughs> about how cold it is, but uh, I think that, you know, when you go to other places and people complain about being cold. I kind of prefer the bitching about it to the, to the, to the friendly, upbeat guy who goes, cold enough for you? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, if you live in Saskatchewan, you have to learn to love the cold. No, I don't. No. No, I don't. 45 below is ridiculous. Yes. Yeah. Are you guys sure about this? Yeah, yeah, it works all the time. All you have to do is go over there and you say, like... I said that I could pay for all three lift tickets and then I left my credit card at the gas station. Right. Totally on money. Just not enough for all three. <laughs> Last run, gotta make it. Woo! Okay, so we're gonna start things off talking about a movie appropriately entitled Frozen. Um, it's written and directed by Adam Green, who kind of made his name with this film called Hatchet, which is like an 87 minute uh, sort of love letter to the 80s slasher movies. Not to be confused with the Disney Frozen. <laughs> no, yeah. Don't take your kids to this one. No, there's no singing snowman in this version of Frozen. This is a very different Frozen. Uh, this concerns uh, three friends um, played by Kevin Zeigers, Sean Ashmore, and Emma Bell. So they turn around to this chairlift and uh, they're going up the side of the mountain just to catch one more ride down before they shut down. And uh, there's a miscommunication and uh, the man who comes to replace the one who's operating the chairlift is told there's three more people on the mountain. And he promptly then sees three people skiing down the hill and turns off the chairlift, thus abandoning our three protagonists stranded in midair uh, above this ski range. Uh, and they, as they realize and slowly take note of their situation, they're looking at five straight days in the freezing cold before that place is going to open up again, or they would be found, and they suddenly need to strategize a way to safety. Thus is the very non-supernatural <laughs> premise of Frozen. Uh, what did you think? Well, it, uh, as, as I recall, and as I said, I've written some notes here, um, 
there were some really nice opening scenes, uh, sorry, opening shots establishing the, the scenery and the background, and, and I think most of them did that, that uh, there is, in spite of the stark coldness of the, of the wintertime, there is also a very stark, pristine sort of pure beauty to it. Absolutely. Like, uh, well, well, like a shark, right? <laughs> One of your favorite animals. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but there is, there is something about the starkness and the isolation and the feeling of sort of, if you're outside in that weather, you could be on your own. Yeah. And so that's, that's sort of a good choice seasonally. And then the very next thing that happens is sort of one of my absolute least hate, at least favorite ways of opening a film is showing a bunch of young people in a vehicle talking stupid <laughs> just to establish that it's young people and they're going away for a weekend. And that, that happened in a few of these. But it's, yeah, they're just, they're just talking about nonsensical things, presumably as they would. I don't know to give it, <clears throat> excuse me, give it a sense of realism, but to offset the thing later on, I don't know. But uh, it's a very common sort of device, and I, I don't, I just, I didn't twig to that at all. It's tricky to establish sort of a getting to know you exposition scene without <clears throat> announcing itself as exposition. Right. So a lot of times the cheap thing is just to have them do witty banker, banter in, in air quotes, right? And depending on how good your writer is, the banter works or it won't. I just sort of took it as your standard getting to know you. We know that one of the guys is dating the Emma Bell character, but he's planning on breaking up with her. That's another thing. There's almost always an odd number. Yeah. Because <laughs> there has to be the smart-ass sort of foil who, uh, judging by the way they act, I, it's no surprise that it's an odd number <laughs> because you can't imagine anyone wanting to go out with them. <laughs> Uh, Typically a male, right? Yeah. The smart-ass, wise-cracking, fifth wheel, if you will. or or We the... talked about before the Cooper character in these mm. movies, uh, yeah. from Night of the Living Dead, the character who's just constantly making things worse, saying the wrong thing, yeah. you know, aggravating an already difficult situation. I don't think I was too hard on that, but because I have a rich appetite for horror movies, I often sort of understand that sometimes you got to sort of slog through the first 20 minutes of these movies. Um I'm not making excuses necessary for this movie no. either. I've seen way worse handling of character and exposition than this. Sure. Um, I think what I would call it guilty is, is that they're kind of shallow. Like, all of the characters in their own way uh, are, <clears throat> are false to each other. Yeah. They say one thing to each other and mean the other. They pretend like they really like each other, but there's, there's obvious conflict. And they're obviously going to exploit that by locking the three of them in this chairlift together. Right, right. And that's a necessary component because you need that point of conflict yeah. for you know, sundry story arcs later on or like those mini scene arcs. But you also need people you're cheering for. When yeah. they get into the predicament, you as an audience member should want them to get out of it. And sometimes I'm not. <laughs> as, a, as a result of this, sometimes it's, uh, you know, like, come on, monster. You know, I can... <laughs> it's... Because it's just a movie, yeah. I don't feel so bad about saying oh, that. Absolutely. I wouldn't say that about a real situation. And if it's a monster movie, we paid our ticket price to see someone get eaten by a monster. Yes. That's what we're here for. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we're complicit in the death in that result. Everyone 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 knows it's like everyone can't get out alive. Yeah. Right? And it's kind of and sometimes writing short stories and things like that, I kind of feel bad because I I build a character, and it's like, yeah, but I'm going to off him, yeah. you know? And so you're kind of the creator, and you're kind of a jerk. You got to take responsibility <laughs> for that death. Yeah. It's, there are problems in that I don't necessarily like all of these people, for the most part, but I am able to get over it. For the, once they get into the situation that is increasingly dire, I'm starting to cheer for them, because the idea of freezing to death, 
next to a person that you blame for freezing you to death. <laughs> just just that situation alone. You train for them to get out of it. And then you have to start getting your head wrapped around, well, what would I do in that situation? And, and as you mentioned, I think alluded to before, having uh, direct experience with this, it's, it's a little closer to home. You mm-hmm. can sympathize with, yeah. that would truly suck. It, yeah, and uh, things that I wouldn't know. Like, if I was in that situation, I would have immediately probably tried to climb up to the wire and, and you know, hand over hand to the next post and slide my way down or climb my way down. But apparently, this is true, I didn't know until watching the movie, those wires, although they look like they're like something you could grab hold of, are actually quite sharp, and they this will is, cut I'm, right through your, your I'm, I'm arm. I'm actually, I was getting to that, that's, that's actually false. Is it? Yes. That was one of my points about the believability, is if you think about it, those wires, those cables, they're going over, first of all, they're round cables, yeah. right? There's no reason to have an edge on them, so they're a bunch of little tiny round strands put into larger round strands, which are then kind of braided or wound into a longer or bigger okay. long strand. First of all, there's no reason for them to be sharp. Secondly, if they were, the wheels would wear out faster. Right. So, they, so that was one thing, and I because I, it didn't make sense to me, so I did a little research on that. Those cables would not. Cut I, I just pleaded pled ignorance because I didn't know. <laughs> so I just took no. That the, was that was, but that was one of the things I looked up because like no, that, yeah. that that one actually doesn't make sense to me. Um, but whether or not that was the case, I do think it would be the case that that thing would be quite oily and very difficult yes. to climb. Right, because be the almost, less the less friction, the better. Yeah, it would be very hard to get your your grip on, let yes. alone if you were cutting yourself on it. Um, but what I was saying is that that's where the movie works for me, is putting myself in their shoes. And uh, I do get to the point where I'm sort of locked in with them and sort of like, oh yeah. shit, how are you going to get yourselves out of this situation? Um, and what I will also give it points for is that Adam Green, like I said, his previous movie to this one, Hatchet, was uh, not subtle. Like This was like people being literally cut in half, you know, <laughs> fountains of blood and gore and tits and, and silliness and tongue-in-cheek. So you were about Frozen. This is not that. He he went a different direction. There wasn't it. the camp with it. Yeah. No. But that was that was one of the things that lost me because when I saw that happening, you know, if you get jarred out of the suspension of disbelief and and think I should make a note on that, mm-hmm. then then it's maybe failed as a as a device. Because I mean that was just one thing that stood out to me is like uh, that really doesn't make sense. I think that there's a movie that works for me mainly on its premise. I think that the actors are up and down. Yeah. Uh, depending on the scene, and uh, I, I believe the situation more or I don't. Um, right. I guess I understand the point psychologically, and we're going to get into some spoilers here, where the person will be driven to just say, fuck it, I'm going to jump. Oh, yes. <laughs> uh, yeah. As opposed to just sitting here and, and, and freezing to death. It's, there's that sort of point where, you, where a person might come to the realization that, I'm dead anyway. Yeah. I might as well make a break for it while I've still got the strength to deal with it. If I'm going to die, let me die a few feet closer to home than yeah, I am right exactly. now. Uh, uh, but seriously, like, That's I That's what a lot that. of drunk drivers use as their, uh, <laughs> as their <laughs> justification. Happy to know. Happy to know. I, I do think it's an interesting movie, and I would like recommend it. Like, I don't think it's a waste of your time to check it out, but uh, I think it falls short of being amazing. You know? Right. Oh, no, and, I, and, and like you said, there was that, uh, the, just the establishment of putting them up on the chairlift and like, now what are you going to do? Yeah. There were some other things that, uh, uh, in, from a more critical aspect, like the, the tension between the girlfriend and the third wheel. Yeah. I didn't get that, and it didn't really come out. Like, it seemed to me, uh, when I took a writing class... 
and the guy described it as whack-a-mole. If you bring a point up somewhere, you have to whack it down later. And, you establish that there's a gun hanging over the fireplace. Yes. Sooner or later, the gun will be used. Yes. Yeah. 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 Or uh, the and the the deal with the lift tickets. Yeah. Like they didn't have lift tickets, and then they had to charm their way on. Maybe and just from the discussion we've had now, maybe that was to justify them being on the lift and getting forgotten. It was part of the because because cruel they, they, chain they, of the, events. Yeah. Kind of like the the open water one. Where, exactly. It's just where a was it a matter of yeah. And so maybe that was meant to lend itself to that portion of their predicament. Yeah. But they're her charming their way onto the lift. I didn't I didn't really get, but maybe that was it. There are no villains and there are no real monsters until the wolves show up in this movie. <laughs> uh, um, and uh, again, I bet you if I did research on wolves, I would have a lot more questions to ask. Again, I, I take things at, their <laughs> at face value in this movie. But right. I think that it would be the really tough to keep the whole movie in the chairlift. I think they were just trying to uh, expand the world outside of the chairlift before they locked us into that. Fair enough, yeah. Once we're locked into that, we are locked into that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, one of the characters does make the jump and does break his legs, and I that do, was creepy. That the broken was, legs when they showed the broken legs, how like, broken they were. Yeah, that <laughs> that part was like, eee. yeah, <laughs> you know. And you get the feeling like he he thought he was so numb that he would like he was he knew he would likely break his legs jumping down there, but at that point he like I say he would be willing to die crawling closer to home. Yeah, um, and, and uh, he just wanted out of that chair, away from them, and just away from the situation. And if it hadn't been, you know, the legs notwithstanding, he uh, he might. Might have had because all he had to do was drag himself downhill. Downhill, as as much as that would be horrible, abject pain. Yeah, he might have made a go for it if it hadn't been <laughs> for them pesky wolves. Those pesky wolves. And uh, this is just a plot point for me. And again, I don't know wolves. I completely buy them eating the wounded guy <clears throat> who can't get away and that, making a meal out that, of him. That part of it, I would kind of get, uh, and that that part of it, I would, I, I. Took as written, like, okay, yeah, you know, maybe. I get it. No, for sure, they would prey upon the weak. But, but I, it seems to me that after they fed later on, they wouldn't be chasing the other ones. That's right where I was going. With that. <laughs> uh, once the wolves had their feast and got the easy meal, once our other two people are trying to get down the hill, and they would keep going back to the guy that was already dead, absolutely, before they would go after the other ones because the other two because it's hurt. already there. They're not hurt. They're well. They're more than willing to defend themselves. Right, so I what, whatever of, that means, yeah. So yeah. that part was yeah. yeah. And again, uh, and who knows? I don't know how wolves react. Oh, and the no. the other thing about it was there was kind of um, it seemed to me that it was time for a different threat. Yeah, you know. So there's trapped on a chairlift, uh, uh, can't jump. You know, the height is too big. So there's there's trapped on the chairlift first. The first threat is the cold. The second threat then is the altitude or the height of the the cable. Psychological deterioration. The well. the next threat. Well, yeah, yeah, and they have their arguments or uh, the who was it? Someone someone froze to the bars. Yeah, the like female that. character fell yeah. asleep with their hands on the bar. Yeah. So, but that that kind of goes back to the cold threat, but in a new way. Yeah. Uh, the threat of the cable. You yeah. know, you can't just the the way it was presented, and then the threat of the wolves. Uh, the wolves coming back, uh, I thought it was time for a new threat, and, I, and I, I don't know what that would be. I don't have a suggestion there, yeah. but bringing them back to me seemed like a, a bit of a disappointment. It was time for something new. It's worth watching because not not necessarily how satisfied I am with how everything wraps up neatly in the bowl, where I didn't have any questions or plot holes to pick, but it did let my imagination as far as what would I do if that happened to me. And I really do like the situational horrors that seem very, you know... Like it could happen to anybody, just bad, yeah. wrong place, wrong yep. time. 
the, the chairlift stops at the wrong time, or the elevator stops at the wrong time, or you sleep and miss your subway, yeah. and you wake up and you're in a fucking awful situation. <laughs> and that's where I think this works. I asked a lot of questions, like I said, about the oh. wire, about the wolves, about the chair, but I always accepted what I was presented with. I never cried bullshit when I was watching the For movie. me, it was the cable. Yeah. Yeah, as, as I mentioned. And the hand frozen to the bar was grisly. Yeah. <laughs> that, was, that was really well done. Yeah. What I would say before we get into this review of Dead Snow is that uh, when I'm looking at a movie, uh, especially for the podcast, say what I liked, what I didn't like, or, or does it work, is what is the movie, what are they trying to do, and how close to success do they come with doing it? This movie is absolutely ridiculous, and it knows that it's ridiculous. So the question is, is it fun enough that you can give it a pass and go with the craziness or is it just too stupid to embrace? Most of the jury here is split, so I'm fascinated to hear what you have to say about Dead Snow. Well, it's not that winter on its own, as we've alluded to, or said outright a number of times, isn't horrifying enough. But then you've got to throw in, got to throw in uh, being stranded and throw in uh, uh, zombies. But even that's not enough. They have to be Nazi zombies who yes. are cold resilient yeah. and they're fast. So uh, it's, it's kind of, uh, the stakes are ratcheted up a little bit. <laughs> and, and the fact that, of course, going into these stories generally, a person doesn't believe it, even when they're seeing it at first. Yeah. That changes significantly by the end. The, the premise was, was, was kind of fun. And it, was, it, seemed, it seemed a little, um, how to put it, like it suffered a bit of a multiple personality disorder that it started out with sort of the realism. Of course, it's horror genre, so it's not necessarily going to be realism. The way Frozen was, right. and then it became uh, a, a very almost campy kind of uh, uh, resolution, <laughs> if you will. It shifts gears <clears throat> repeatedly, suddenly, and yes. abruptly. Yes, um, and, and that's okay for me. Like I don't mind your movie sort of knocking me off guard a little bit here and there. Uh, I just want to know your heart's in the right place. For me, I think that the heart is in the right place. I kind of love this movie, <laughs> but uh, I am aware that this is a bunch of very familiar elements just put in a blender. Uh, what I like about it is that it's old and new. You sort of have the old pastiche of Nazi zombies trying to get back their Nazi gold from beyond the grave. I don't think that's going to, you know, surprise anybody. And also sort of the sort of modern, you know, scream generation cast of very savvy, referential, you know, kids. It's not quite as wink-wink as Scream as far as they're practically talking to the audience as it goes on there, but there's a little bit of that in the brew as well. I think what will make people like or hate the movie is if you're willing to adjust to the tone. 
can you laugh at these people one scene and say that's a hilarious you know uh, little anecdote and can you sort of enjoy how hammy the spooky guy who comes there to warn them is uh because that's a that guy shows up in so many horror movies you kids don't know what you got yourself into <laughs> exactly. and you get the feeling that they milked that for everything that they could because they know that this guy is in every horror movie he shows up he gives them the information the creepy the, the creepy local yeah shows up gives them the warning and then usually he dies right that's just how it is so which exactly he's he's the one in the know yeah what's he doing out in a freaking tent he's there (laughs) to give them the information and die yes that's what his purpose is now objectively that's stupid and obvious but this movie is about stupid and obvious this is what i'm saying it's a carnival ride it's much less seriously toned than frozen this is this is like guffaw halloween night drink a beer Wow, that just happened movie. <laughs> yeah. And that's how you have to approach it. If you're going to watch this movie with a critical eye, if you want to find a way to poke holes in this movie, you'll find them, you know? Oh, and I, I, and I do. I'm one of those people. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I, think, I think that the movie's heart is in the right place. As much yeah. as it's, like, sick and gruesome and violent and, you know, nihilistic in some ways... Um, it's also pretty fun, and uh, yeah. that's enough for me to give it a recommend. Now, I will say in the uh, in the the cold open, right. the, the uh, nice use of Grieg, the the um, she's okay. going through the forest, and it's the the song playing over top of it, right? And uh, and then that jump scare, it got me, <laughs> it got me, and so that was the the opening on that one. I really liked that part of it. That was really well crafted. But then. We cut to the scene right after that. A uh, bunch of pretty kids. The odd number of young people going yeah. off to have a fun weekend <laughs> and and talking stupid. And again, I, I recognize that it's not necessarily easy to do that. And sometimes it's just, well, we got to do this so we can get to the good stuff. Fair enough. But it almost seems like well, then maybe you don't need to do it because if you're if you're establishing a cliche versus a character, you, you almost shouldn't bother. Almost, but I, I, again, I don't have, I don't have a, a credible alternative to that. So I, I really can't. I'm not too critical of it. Again, I, for me, it just like, what are you trying to accomplish? And even within that box of what they're trying to accomplish, they did do a few little inversions that I thought worked. And like you said, the scares actually work. And in this ridiculous Nazi zombie movie, there's a few deaths that are felt. Yes. You know, where you're like, oh, that sucks, dude. <laughs> Uh, so on one hand you've got that and on the other hand you've got things that are just so obvious like you say the clumsy exposition at the beginning or how they painfully go out of the way to establish that one of the characters gets a little wiggy at the sight of blood so of course you know there's going to be a scene where he's going to have to overcome this maybe you won't predict that he's going to sever his own arm but you know Um, but you you know there's nothing subtle about the setup and there's nothing subtle about the payoff. Technically, nothing surprised me in it, but I still was smiling while yeah, I was yeah, watching. Yeah. <laughs> Technically, uh, and this might seem like really uh, petty, but I thought the subtitles went by too fast. <laughs> I had a hard time, and of course, generally what happens is they choose white text. Yeah. In a winter theme thing, and and it this is a pet peeve of mine, and I thank you for bringing it up. Really? Uh, yeah, the, that they do, either when the subtitles are too fast, that's a bit frustrating. If you're used to watching subtitled films, apparently you'll read them faster, but uh, I'm a slow reader at the best of times. I am too, apparently. But I will put up with it, because I fucking hate watching movies that are dubbed. Yes, <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Um, it's in widescreen, you put the subtitles on the black bar at the bottom of the screen. Nice. They're crystal clear, you can read them, <laughs> and it just makes sense. 
Uh, they otherwise, it's like you say, they just use the white text, and sometimes you get washed out in the environment, especially in movies like this one. Exactly. Or they use the yellow block text with the sort of heavy borders to help clarify them, but they kind of pop out more, and it's almost like the movie becomes about the subtitles. So when a subtitle pops up, yeah. even even watching and maybe you've done this, but even watching a regular English show, if there are subtitles, your eyes drawn to the text. Yeah. But uh, I recently did an episode of a, called Subtitled Scares, and, and I was just all about that. If you have the option between watching it dubbed and watching it uh, subtitled, always go for the subtitle. Even if the I'm with you even if one. they go by too fast, and even if the English is less than elegant. I, I ended up having to back up or pause it sometimes <laughs> just to, to catch the, the dialogue as a result of it. With the, the two subtitled movies that we're dealing with in this group, I also think they're familiar enough territory that... You can catch up. You, you're not going to be too lost. There's not a lot that's going to be lost in the translation. One of them's I'm like pretty anal that way, though. Yeah, I don't want to miss. But anyway, that rant rant over. Uh, but yeah. that's how you should do subtitles, people. Black bar <laughs> at the bottom of the screen. It's there. Use it. It's been done since the mid '90s. Just do it. Anyway, what were we talking about? Yeah, dead snow. Oh, then the the, the quick the quick cuts of putting the snow gear on kind of yeah. reminded me of Hot Fuzz. Yeah, Those, or Evil Dead. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Those quick cuts. Or the guy. What have I got here? The same when the guy was building the torch to go through the snow cave, mm-hmm. like an idiot. <laughs> yeah. Why are you going in the snow cave? Because we need another creepy yeah. guy walking towards something spooky, and then something goes boo scene. Um, I, I did did uh, was not expecting the rather sudden creepy sex scene that we are treated to early in the movie where the nerd gets a visitation while in the outhouse from the hottie. Are you remembering this? Um, yes. Because it's been played off as sort of like clearly the, the, the nerdy guy of the group who's just there to, uh, He's you know. He's kind of crude and... Yeah. Yeah. But uh, That's a, That was he, a weird pair bonding. He seems like he was the odd guy out and he was just going to be, you know, all sad and alone, you know, smoking his joint alone while everybody was screwing in the room. But all of a sudden she follows him to an outhouse in the middle of the winter. I mean, if there's a less romantic place to have sex, I don't know, but bless her heart for thinking of it. <laughs> <laughs> they say romance is dead, Robbie, but after watching those two people screwing in an outhouse in the dead of winter, I think that maybe they're wrong. <laughs> they uh, they need to they need to see this movie. <laughs> True, it is inspiring. Um, Speaking though of the the sex, like when the when the ranger guy gets it in the tent, it, it actually the silhouette almost looked like there might be a sexual activity going on. <laughs> I'm I'm sure he's getting murdered by uh, uh, not cold resistant snombies. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, but uh, the the silhouette's like well I could go either way. Like if you put a different uh, audio track you dub something underneath it yeah it's, it kind of you know, could go e- could go either way um, I'm encouraging people to check out Dead Snow but like I say I think this sort of qualifies in sort of the almost guilty pleasure end of the spectrum I mean it, <laughs> you, you, you watch it and enjoy it and if you feel you need to cleanse the palate afterwards go rent my dinner with Andre or whatever <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> uh, this movie is not a smart movie and it is a fun movie and for me that's that's enough. Well, and then and then some of the other cliches, like the close up on the carrot, when it's like, oh, is she gonna cut herself? No, <laughs> yeah, of course she is. <laughs> it's a fun ninety minutes, though. And what was the guy's name? Erland. 
uh, going into the very explicit and effects-heavy portion of the battle royale, uh, I would have to say it was pretty gory when Erlen got his eyes pushed in. Yeah, and his brains splashed out. Yeah, there was, they... and then and then fish hooked. <laughs> but you, you, there was no question. It wasn't like, oh, is he going to be okay? <laughs> is he going to pull out? No, he's dead. That he's, one, that he, one's he's pretty conclusively, absolutely, horribly dead. <laughs> And as far as, uh, and this is more of an inconsistency rather than it really bugged me, but sometimes the zombies are slow and sometimes they were fast. Yeah. That might be, again, a picky, petty point, mm-hmm. but it, you kind of got to pick a lane there. Yeah. You know, or, or what, are they just slow? They just got up. They haven't had their coffee yet. Like, If you want to ask hard questions of this movie, it's not gonna, <laughs> it's not going to pass <laughs> much. It, it really isn't. But if you want to have fun watching a, a Nazi zombie, and I do think that that's the goal. They're trying to have fun. As much as there are scary moments and as much as there are actually pretty shocking, bloody moments that are kind of felt, the heart of this movie is this is goofy fun. Uh, they, they're making references to movies like Evil Dead 2 and Army of Darkness because they want to include themselves in that canon. And they're, they, they're good enough filmmakers that I will, I will, I will welcome them into it. That long-haired character, I don't remember his name, but he was hardcore. The one that stitched his own neck up <laughs> yeah. and then mounts that shotgun on the skidoo, or a machine gun on the skidoo? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> go, there was a hardcore individual. Go home or go hard. Just make sure all the changes out of your pockets. Exactly. <laughs> Martin, the guy when he cuts his arm off, and then he kind of gets that toothy hummer from the zombie that pops out of the snow. <laughs> wow, this is a bad day. Yeah. Like, like, and the, can you give the guy like a couple of minutes to enjoy his triumph? He overcame his his uh, his blood. Yeah, phobia. his blood phobia. And then, no, sorry, yeah, we're, we're so... gonna bite your junk off. <laughs> yeah. Nice try, asshole. Yeah. <laughs> this movie also has another uh, accidental death in it, which I usually like in, in horror movies. There's, uh, you know, the situation creates such high stress that people make rash decisions <laughs> or, or, or are, you, are you getting into the moral that I took away from the movie that's never tap a guy on the shoulder who's just gone berserk on a zombie with a hatchet? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Not recommended. That's um, the grim fairy tale description of that. Especially in this movie I found it shocking because again of its sort of goofiness, that moment was really ugly. And like and Hannah, that character, had gone through so much at that point to get back to them and to finally get there only to get <laughs> Well and that's another thing where it kind of uh in a way I don't know if it breaks the rules or the cliches of the the genre, but just in so doing that he's overcome something, there's been a success and bang. Yeah, yeah it, it meant nothing. Or <laughs> Or then, like you're saying, Hannah gets back, and yeah, but for naught. Two steps forward, <laughs> one step back. Yeah. yeah. What I didn't like was the clips under the menus. The clips under the menus. You know how when you've got the menu screen on the DVD? Oh, okay, yeah. It, it gave too much away. A lot it of was spoilers like, there. Yeah, yeah. Right out Well, they the do gate. it in trailers now, too. Yeah. Like in... Uh, I think if you want to go the lessons, we're going a little off track here, but so be yeah. it. If you want to go the lesson of like the difference between a good trailer and a bad trailer, I would invite you to look at the teaser trailer for the film Castaway, starring Tom Hanks. Oh, okay. And then watch the actual trailer. The teaser trailer, I think, is amazing. It shows you enough of the premise of the setup of the movie. Tom Hanks is left alone on an island, and he's stranded, and he needs to get off. And, you know, it basically shows little pieces of the crash and him screaming on the beach, help, hello, hello, and showing how isolated he was. But the trailer for that movie is the entire movie, up to and including 
spoilers, he gets rescued off of the island. Like, oh so my goodness. All of that conflict and all that tension just... Out yeah. the window. Oh, it's okay, you guys. It'll be all right. He'll get off the island. Yeah. I mean, most people who pay their ticket know that inherently. It's a Robert Zemeckis joint. It's not going to end with Tom Cruise's skeleton bleached on the beach. But those well, two Titanic, trailers... You kind of know where that's going. Yeah. Right? But those two trailers, I think, are just the illustration of how to do it and how not to do it. Still more snowboarders and still more subtitles for this next film, uh, Cold Prey. Very different animal than than Dead Snow in that I think this is definitely trying to be a scary, you know, slasher suspense movie. Um, whereas, you know, I didn't get a lot of laughs out of Cold Prey. Where I, no. I, was, laughing, <laughs> I was laughing a lot in, in Dead Snow, so they're different in that. But on a premise level, they're not entirely different. In this case, the snowboarding adventure gets sidelined with a broken leg. They have to, from a premise standpoint, find their way to this abandoned ski lodge where they make a point of splitting up and going into the creepiest corridors they can find to be stalked and killed one by one by a merciless killer. Uh, is this familiar ground? Yes, it is. But uh, the the genre exists. It's like so many subgenres of horror, creature features, the slashers, ghost movies. There's a lot of them. And every now and then, someone gets it right. Is this one of those? <laughs> Where do you land on Cold Prey? Um, okay, well, um, um, where do we go? I have to say, uh, and like we were talking about when you had a pause there, the the opening shots of the um, of the uh, uh, scenery yeah. were really lovely, and they they were maybe a touch on the overexposed side, but that really lent itself to the coldness and the isolation, and so I I actually liked that part of it quite a bit more so than than Dead Snow too. I think it was it was isolating and creepy. Yeah, at the same time, like it's beautiful and creepy. It sort of walks that line. And anyone who's walked out in the snow, again, knows that it can be very bright and blindingly so. Yeah. There is a snow blindness. It exists. That's right? not just in the movies. That's no. a real thing that happens, yes. Um, it, it, you know, to the, just the cold isolation. I, I really liked those those establishing probably second unit shots. Yeah. And, and it really did lend itself to it. And it, it also, uh, I think, uh, lends itself well to a, a larger contrast that you can see for miles and everywhere and then later on you're in this cramped space that you don't know very well yeah. and and someone else does yeah. and I think it that, that little contrast I think does carry through into it, it did for me anyway and the isolation is that seeing for miles in all directions is beautiful but it's no help to you in, in a dire it, it also yeah, can be demoralizing when you're trying to hump out on a broken leg exactly, exactly. <laughs> like we've got to get to that peak before we can get to the next one yeah. and we can see them both I think the getting to know you banter is relatively painless in this movie uh, 
there's the wild child who busts his leg, uh, and you kind of know... Talks about masturbating. Yeah, he's going to be the one who's going to cause a problem if anybody is in the group. And and I think that they do take steps to try and redeem that character, too. They do, Uh, yeah. uh, So, I mean, there's an arc to him more so than you get in most of them. Typically, the character's an asshole, then he has... All he gets is a deservedly painful death at some point in the movie. It was was a little bit like uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre meets Hot Dog. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Probably more Texas Chainsaw than Hot Dog, but I see where you're going. <laughs> um, I didn't actually have a lot of notes uh, on that one. Uh, there was, as as you said, the, the cliche banter, yeah, and the the establishing of oh, he's he's a real cut up, and and then the other two couples are these two couples, and he is the literal fifth wheel. Yeah. Um, we need the plot point of someone has to be. Uh, incapacitated in some way for them not to leave and have to hole up in this uh, abandoned ski lodge or whatever it right. is overnight. The um, there were you know there were the jump scares, uh, as you said, doing what what everyone kind of thinks they shouldn't in any of those situations is go off on your own. Yeah, well, particularly particularly after the first death. Yeah, I think at that point it's uh, you know do some found weapons mm-hmm. and. Uh, Get in a circle like Bison, and yeah. everyone faces out. Unless, well, unless you're thinking that it's one of the people in the party, which yeah. is also a. But Once I don't. I don't think they really played on that potential at no, all. There's confusion amongst the group, and people go missing for a while. They don't know exactly right. what's happened. We know what's happened. The reason I brought this up actually oh, initially. Oh, right, right, right. No, no, no. The reason I brought it up initially was just like I think it walks the line that every sort of horror movie like this does, and that from a story standpoint, you kind of need to split up the group. Yes. In order to do the job that the movie wants you to do, which is sort of create these... Unless you do it all like Descent, where it's all in pitch black. Yeah. And then someone could just be grabbed. <laughs> yeah, and they don't know they're in a horror movie, is basically what's happening. We're watching the movie, we have the scary movie, we we see the atmosphere that they don't. The, that place didn't look like a ski lodge, right? It looked like a place where you shoot a horror movie. It was like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it yeah. Was like everything was accented to look scary. Uh, the production value was good but to the point of actually bending reality. Would it really look like that? And uh, the same thing is sort of like, would these people make those decisions? Is this a cabin in the woods scenario where they're just making dumb decisions because they have to? It's the ritual of the movie to split them up. Or can you objectively sort of remove yourself enough to say, well, I know it because I'm watching a horror movie, but if I was in this situation, and I didn't know that I was in a horror movie. Right. Would I feel bad about sneaking down the hallway? Pass to, me the the cover. Yeah, sneaking down the hall to to get some alone time with my girlfriend, or or see what I can steal from the place since it looks more or less abandoned. Maybe there's a bunch of booze or stuff like that. Like it's weird the baggage that the viewer brings to a movie like this. And it's that's and that's a very good point because the characters have not seen the cover of the movie that says cold prey prepare for your final descent right <laughs> yeah and they didn't also have the benefit of of seeing the uh, the quote here spectacularly scary yeah right for so, them they're a bunch of kids going for a vacation they're going snowboarding for the weekend they're not even going for, it might not even be for the weekend yeah right they yeah. might just want to do some backcountry hiking and they couldn't afford to heli ski yeah right and so they want to get into some some more or less virgin snow without paying an arm and a leg. 
So that's what I'm asking. Is, <laughs> did you buy, or did you get past the, the, the reason that they were splitting up or the constant isolation or the bad decision making? Did you find yourself slapping your forehead and going bullshit or did you go with it? Because for me, that's the pass or fail <clears throat> on whether or not you like this move. <laughs> I think, I think, um, I think I did. I think I did, uh, for, forgive it, if you will, yeah. or, or buy it. Uh, because I, d I didn't write a bunch of notes saying like, oh, that is a complete, like in, in Dead Snow, the guy going into the cave, like, yeah. well, that's kind of kind of a bad idea, is it? Best case scenario. <laughs> <laughs> you don't find a Nazi snow yeah. zombie. It's just a polar bear or something. Yeah. Like yeah, yeah. Oh, that's a relief. But it's still a polar bear. I didn't make a note of that in this one, so I, I would have to say, no, that didn't rattle me or jar me out of the suspension yeah. of disbelief. There the, are the, things in this movie that you have seen before. There are character sure. elements that you've seen before. We just talked about the accidental death of someone entering a door at the wrong time and being on the business end of some bad news. We've seen it all before, but the production value and I think the performance is elevated in this case. Yes. I understand it's in a different language, but I think the emotion comes through. And I believe these kids were scared and I believe that they were fighting for their lives. And yeah. I was cheering for them and I took it on a much more serious note than I did like I said dead snow I, I, I saw them as people and not sheep in that regard so right. it, it worked in that the movie did what a slasher movie should do it did all of those things while being another slasher movie right uh, the other the other thing though <laughs> uh, about about the uh, the ending though is it does show that it shows that while the uh, assailant or the monster if you will is falling down that crevice yeah it shows some footage that led to his being the way he is presumably and it was completely there is uh, and again i think it's a balancing act and for me they didn't quite meet it of giving enough but not too much and it just didn't, I didn't understand why he was on the ground and I'm assuming those were his parents were kicking snow on him and his dad looking stern and his yeah. mom crying. I, 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 I understood that that was supposed to give some insight into, you know, don't be mean to your kids or yeah. something. Like, and I don't think it was that sort of message. I think that was meant to be a little bit of a, a hint into the backstory, but I it, think it, the it, was idea a little, was it didn't make he, sense to me. He was abandoned and left for dead by his parents, but he didn't die. He turned into this evil thing. Right. They could have shown more of that, though. Well, they saved that for the sequel, truth be told. There's a oh, sequel to see, this movie. I haven't seen that. <laughs> There's a sequel to this movie, and they do go into it. Uh, um, but, so that was just a hook yeah. for the next film. Uh, well, I don't know if they knew they were making the next film when they did this movie, but I think <clears> that <throat> probably the writer has had his, fing his fingers crossed that he wanted to franchise this, because you know, right. if they can make six of these, he's going to have a much nicer house. Uh, you know. <laughs> <laughs> is that, and is that part of the, uh, the last jump just before the credits? Um, you know, yes, we wanted to talk about this, the last jump. Uh, it, this is a particularly random one in that everything is resolved. The killer's at the bottom of this pit, and she's the, the survivor girl is on her knees, shaken, but alive. Yes. And then all of a sudden, random cut to uh, Scythe falling down, or whatever it was, into frame, and darkness and credits. People will argue that Carrie started it, but I have to believe that it's probably before this where horror movies have a need to finish on a scare. It's the same sort of idea with your broad comedies, right? Always leave them laughing. So Carrie's hand has to pop out of the grave and <laughs> everybody jumps there and drops their popcorn. See, but that right? one is, is linearly it consistent. Works into the story. Jason Voorhees, as a child, jumps out of the lake and everybody jumps because they thought the scare was over. The shark that everyone thought was dead pops out of the water right before the credits roll. It is 
almost like a copyright stamp on a, a industry standard horror movie, leave with a punch, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, in this case, it is particularly guilty of just being random. Like, it's not... So you're with me on that one, though. Absolutely. <laughs> okay. Absolutely. I'm not defending that it's there. I'm telling you why it's there, because... Right. A lot of people believe that's how you end a movie. Uh, again, I just uh, I was telling you not to spoil movies outside of this list. I just spoiled several of them. <laughs> one of the classic things that... Uh, Nightmare on Elm Street. Some people argue classic horror movie. Okay? Uh, they, yep. didn't, they didn't know how to end that movie. Really, the end of that movie doesn't make any sense in a lot of ways. But everything that came before it was so good... That by the time the credits rolled, you were just sort of glad to have witnessed this fantasy horror movie. Right. It's it's a weird thing. Like they they need like a really punchy line, or a, for some reason the victims just slumping over and, and and putting their arms around each other and crying is not satisfactory. Uh, most horror movies will have some kind of punch at the end, <laughs> and that's why it's there. And you know maybe by that point, you know the the director and the writer and everyone else is out, and the producers looking at it and telling the editor put this here because it fits the formula like you're saying and and didn't give much thought to the story which is you know the constant battle between uh the creative aspect of the film industry and the business aspect of the film industry where they're going like we can't just leave it yeah. a bunch of people huddled around crying or one shaking that sort of thing we've got to have that jump scare at the end I mean, I, I let it go. Like I said, it, it's standard. And a lot about this movie is industry standard. I think because of the elevated uh, <clears throat> production values and because, and I you know this sounds dismissive, but uh, people have a tendency to give a higher rating to films that are foreign. Somehow they're automatically just a little bit better because... Well, they're very continental. You've got to understand, Larry. Um, well, it's true. There are a lot of like movies that, that, that get a good reputation overseas, especially horror movies. I will, won't completely blow me away. I mean, a lot of... But uh, just generally speaking, not even just in the horror movies, but for some reason, uh, because they don't release every movie that was made in Japan and every movie that was made in Guatemala here, the fact that these are the ones we get to see, we assume we give them a certain degree of prestige. In a way, this is just another slasher movie. It's a really well-made slasher movie. It's really well-acted, and it's got some effectively done scenes, and it does everything a slasher movie is supposed to do well enough. But it's not particularly special in that it doesn't reinvent the wheel at right. all. Right, <laughs> at all. Up to the point of having a copyright random scare right before the credits fall. Because that's, that's, the that's what you do. Yeah, that's the bit that just kind of was, was <laughs> not in keeping with the rest of it, really. Because yeah. I thought the acting was solid. Uh, you know the the technical the production values were were pretty solid. I mean, you had your misgivings about the maybe about the inside of the chalet, but uh, I, it I thought, looked like, good. It really looked good, and it helped it to just, add to the atmosphere. To me, I thought it was just real. in disrepair. Yeah, there are there is something about these movies that is maybe because I'm used to horror movies with such low budgets that can't get away with it. A lot of these remakes of movies like the Amityville Horror, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Every single location just looks like it was made to shoot a horror movie in. Right. And I understand that there are abandoned farms that look every bit as creepy as that they are portrayed there, but there's something about the production that almost announces itself. Mm. But um, it's that's me looking for stuff to pick on, you know? If you yeah. like slasher movies, by all means. We had a class together, you know? Intro to Modern Philosophy? 
God, there's like a million people in that class. <laughs> it's like Woodstock. So uh, are you doing anything over the break? Oh, I'm getting that laser eye surgery. But your glasses look so good on you. How would you know? I never wear them outside my dorm. The National Weather Service has issued a winter storm warning for the entire eastern seaboard. Temperatures will plunge with a wind chill reaching 30 degrees below zero. What the hell is this? Are we lost or something? It's a shortcut. Get back on the highway. Hello? Any luck? I can't get a signal. What's wrong with you? What did I do? You you drove us here! You think I intentionally arranged for us to get stranded? What kind of a psycho do you think I am? All right, moving on. There are no skiers in this movie, and there's no subtitles for us to contend with. So we're already we're already on a little bit firmer ground. Um, this is a suspenseful little picture called Windchill. It's re uh, directed by Gregory Jacobs, um, and interestingly produced by, uh, among other people, George Clooney and Steven Soderbergh. Emily Blunt and Ashton Holmes play the leads in this movie. Um, and interestingly, they're not given names. It's the girl and the guy. Right. And uh, the ghost figure that they end up encountering, spoilers, uh, is played by an actor uh, named Martin Donovan, who I've seen in a lot of things. And I've kind of got weird mixed feelings about it. He has this really sort of stony delivery that he kind of just always is Martin Donovan. I don't know if it's good or bad or indifferent, but... Maybe he's been pigeonholed and those I, are the roles he gets because that's what he's known for? For me, he always seems to have this vaguely bored vibe to him. I don't know, and maybe that's just me. This is my personal baggage I'm bringing to it. But I think in this in this case, it may work for him because of the character that he's playing is kind of uh, mysterious. Um, a lot of these elements, though, are distracting. The fact that we don't get to know the characters' names sort of I don't know, ends up kind of getting in the way. I kind of I like that because uh, it what it says to me is the writer sort of acknowledge it really doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah. Bob, it, Bob and Pauline. There, better? Yeah. Does that yeah, make yeah. the movie better now or worse? Now it's scary. But I, don't, I just don't understand it as a choice. And in a way, for me, it reminds me of how I wrote my first few plays, which were essentially conversations with myself. I was listening to a conversation in my head and transcribing it, essentially. And I would literally write it down. A says this, B says that. A. But... It's just it's a, it's something that either seems like a first time writer thing or that that you would do very consciously and for a reason. See, and I, the went, only, I went the consciously and for a reason route, and yeah. that's what I I want to go with you with that. But I'm not sure if I fully understand what that reason is. Um, if it's the boy and the girl is suggesting that uh, all of these victims that have been accumulating over the years up until this point has been a boy and a girl, maybe that's what they went for. Um, but. That note wasn't hit to the point where I, I it caught my ear. I understood that they were going out of their way to not tell us their names, but again, I wasn't sure why. The other things that are going on, I think, actually kind of work. Uh, the Emily Blunt character starts to become increasingly suspicious of this guy. I love that opening of the the unknown guy who knows too much about her. Exactly. And uh, how they how they kind of didn't get along, and then he was behaving sketchy, and so there was kind of a little. Uh, a little bit of, and I thought well crafted, red herring in he's going to be and she's going to be trying like some sort of Is weirdo, and villain? she's going to be trying to get away from, him. and then it turns out not to be the case. Yeah. Like okay, 
there's a good twist. Uh, but it's a great character thing, and I think a very accurate one, especially of young puppy love, stalker love, or whatever you want to call it. Uh, because it, I think he does cross a privacy line and yeah. an engagement line. Like, when he tricks her into taking... He lies about where he lives to get her to just be in the car with him for this time. Yeah. He doesn't mean to rape her. He's not, like, all As creepy or anything out. like that. But... Uh, it, it's 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 a movie thing. In a movie, it's romantic. In real life, you get arrested. Lloyd Dobler holding his ghetto blaster over the head, playing Peter Gabriel over and over again outside his girlfriend's window, yes. is super romantic and say anything. In the real world, the cuffs are on Lloyd, and Lloyd yes. is going to jail. Hey, turn that shit <laughs> exactly. off. <It's> Sunday. <laughs> exactly. And it's creepy. Yeah. And it's creepy. Legit creepy. Like doing the the grand gesture. Realistically, this guy has gone out of his way to try and learn about this girl and to uh, find a way of um, meeting her on some yeah. intellectual level. And he's given her a free ride to yeah. wherever, which is way out of his way. Absolutely. Like, like if someone, if someone, like if you were stranded and someone gave you a long ride, but it's the fact that he didn't tell her. Yeah. And the only difference between him and uh, your your average, you know, sexual predator is the end game. The end game for him is that. He wants a girlfriend. Yeah. He wants a girlfriend. He's not trying to kill her. Or he doesn't take her into some torture dungeon. But he's done, gone about it in about as creepy a way as possible. And I can feel I can feel for that guy though because yeah. I myself have uh, not to that extent. No, I like to think have been guilty of. <laughs> but but being awkward and not knowing quite what to do, but wanting to do something, and and so I, I guess uh, I sympathize yeah. with him in that respect. When when you see the rest of the arc and that he's not going to take her to a dungeon and yeah. tie her up and 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 put a video camera on her and webcast it, when you see that it's it's yeah, dude, you totally went that totally looks stalkerish. Yeah, but it was it wasn't out of any sense of malice. It was about he he just went about it the wrong yeah. way. Your heart was in the right place, but she would still be completely right to kick you in the balls. Yes, yes, uh, <laughs> and, and leave you to freeze. And, yeah. <laughs> um, Anyway, the great thing about all this, we talk about it that much. This is all set up. This is all the tension. Exactly. Developed this was this in was a car. really good setup, and it was a setup that looked like it was going somewhere it wasn't, and yeah. I I did enjoy that part of it. And that was enough. I don't think we needed the he she business over and above that. I don't think. But uh, I don't think they needed names either. Though. Yeah, it doesn't matter. It didn't like it. Still, it was still well portrayed. And if her, his name was George and her name is Iris, it doesn't really change anything. George, that we George said. Georgette. Georgina. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, once we get to the point where all of a sudden they get, they decide to take the spooky shortcut and they get run off the road and the, uh, they're starting to get cold and they're starting to get a little bit more desperate. Well, they get run off the road by that truck, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. And then the truck doesn't leave any tracks in the snow. Correct. And that's a nice, a nice device that yeah. something's not quite right here. And that's sort of the point where, again, he wasn't off the hook yet. Yeah. You know, maybe he's maybe he's uh, supernatural or something or other. But he wasn't quite off the hook at that point. Yeah, uh, he's also wounded in the when the car gets spits sp- off yes. the road. He's hurt pretty badly, as it turns out. And I do think that there may be a little bit of selectivity in the screenplay as to how hurt he is in a given scene to the next. Um, because that happens all the time. You if we play that card, that you know, he uh, he's not a bad dude. He's legit, so he he really is hurting. He's uh, just awkward and doesn't know what to do. Yeah, uh, but he says he's going to go try and make his way to the gas station or whatever it is, and then he leaves and comes back saying the gas station was closed and there's no way he was gone long enough. Yes, he, the, the truth is he staggered out into the woods and realized he didn't have the strength 
and wasn't able to, to go there. And no part of him believed the gas station would be open anyway. It was a one in 100 chance, right? So... Because they really it, had just left it. Yeah. Again, at this point, when things are getting creepy and supernatural, the subterfuge really needed to end. Uh, and it does eventually. It, everything does come out in the car. Um, because he really needs to deflate this tension that's developing between them. Because as things get crazier, she's starting to wonder if she's been lured into here this by this guy, or right. what is she going to have to deal with? Because it gets increasingly fucked. First the invisible car that runs them off the road, and then the monk ghosts that are vomiting snakes. Yes. Right? <laughs> Which I, I, I didn't get quite the, the reason for them to be vomiting snakes. And then they get to that, she finds that burnt out, um, was it an old... Monastery. Monastery. Yeah. Right. Right, because they'd be monks. Yeah. Uh, this all, what's happening here is that we are being shown elements of the history of the backstory of this ghost road or whatever you want to call it. Right. But because we don't know the history yet, we don't know how the pieces fit. We don't know where the monks fit. I don't think we into. ever really do. Well, uh, we find out oh. as things play out that, uh, this, there's a police officer that had used this stretch of road as his personal hunting ground. And he was caught when a group of monks... Well, someone escaped. He lit fire to the monastery. Correct. Someone escaped, the monks helped them, and that led, presumably, to the police officer being found out for what he was, but not before he burned down the monastery. Right. A lot of death has happened on the road, so it's become this cursed place. And apparently, this time of year, it it almost, like, lures these people in like a trap so that these old ghosts can play out this old nightmare. And this police officer can attempt to claim a few more victims. What I like about this screenplay is I think that the guy watched a lot of horror movies. He's got the creepy stalker element well explored there. What's this guy up to? And they've gone out of their way to make us think he's a red herring. So he's probably not a red herring. Uh, But then there's the other step is that they run off the road and all this fucked up shit starts happening. Then you start thinking, did they die in the crash? Is that the reason that they're seeing all this? Isn't that... Another completely adequate interpretation until the cards are shown, right? Yep. So I think that there's actually quite a bit going on in the screenplay. Usually, again, there's kind of the local, the local people who know what's going on. Why did the people from the gas station send them down that, the creepy haunted road, at night, in a snowstorm? Presumably, if they're locals too, they know that people tend to wash up dead in that road. Right. right. This is this is this is this is one of those little. But that for me, that was a small one because. This is all in retrospect. At the time, I was still focused on this, this yeah. other uh, sort of red herring villain. And again, it's something that you'd watch again when you see it the second time. You'd sort of pay closer attention to. Right. It, it, again, it reminds me of an American Wolf in London. The, the the backpackers at the beginning of that are basically sent out into the moors where the locals know for a fact there is a werewolf, and they shoo them out the door. They don't let them stay in the bar, and then they turn around and go and rescue them. But the question remains. Why, Why did they the do that? <laughs> exactly. Um, so if that's a if that's a flaw in the screenplay, I guess it's something that shares with it. Another be one thing: if you like. sent them out knowing and you were offering up a sacrifice yeah. to keep your own village safe, right? That'd be one thing. Yeah. But to send them out and then go save them, yeah. that one kind of stuck. Then the other thing that uh, the the one critique, though the the biggest critique I think I had of it is at the end, where the cop is on fire, and he freezes the tow truck driver. Mm-hmm. That. That's, uh, I mean, the cop is passed on by this point, right? He's, he's been a ghost this whole time, is my understanding. So, none of the ghosts actually were able to do anything to them, except somehow at the very end, this one ghost managed to be corporeal and capable, or at least able of affecting things in the corporeal world. Yeah. And that, 
that was again one of the that's that's the part for me that was the too far i'm just gonna say this is an element as a rule i despise in horror movies when they kill a character off and then the character's ghost shows up to save the day it is (laughs) never not cheesy it's never not cheesy you don't want to use a device employed by friday the 13th part 7 Okay, in a movie that wasn't otherwise lazy, it was a lazy and expected event. Yeah, the 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 creepy stalker kid was so wounded in the car accident that he ended up actually slowly dying over the course of the night. Right. And in spite of the fact that he slowly died over the night and was not trusted by this woman pretty much for the whole time, his ghost shows up to save her at the end of the film because it was true love after all. And he really—it was almost a romantic ending, hey. Creepier still, it suggests to me he continues to stalk her in the afterlife. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but now she really can't get rid of him. Now <laughs> she's fucked, right? The truth is, though, that I liked the movie enough before that happened that right. I'm going to give it a pass, and I will still say like that it's a worthy enough watch. Well, I think, like it, I said, until until that. Until the going too far aspect of it. Yeah. The the rest of it was a really nice build-up. And the red herring really enjoyed that. And some good boo moments, too. Like, it, yes. it, it works enough. It, like, the characters are likable and they work. The scares are set up well and they pay off well. The few minutes before the credits finally roll, it gets a little bit obvious i i like the movie enough but i acknowledge it has flaws i guess is the is what i'm saying well, it, it, I th- there's enough good in this like i said that it's just those little tendons of the screenplay that because so much of it is so good i end up being harder on the he she thing and the ghost saves the day thing because well when something is done is very well executed to a point and then just completely blows out at the end it's like oh you bastards, what happened to this yeah. wonderful little story you were creating? And I still think it's good enough to get a passing grade. Oh, what, yeah. What's the most frustrating is when you have a movie with a good premise, a good cast, and you can see a fantastic Poorly movie there, executed. but it's just not happening. It's the, the, Those are the most infuriating movies to watch. Do you remember the movie where there was kind of a, a creature... It was sort of a possession type movie, and there's that one point where the the girl's mom looks over her shoulder, and it looks like sort of a dinosaur Darth Maul thing is over her shoulder. Oh, Insidious. Yes. Yeah, see, that one had uh, 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 a sort of a paranormal activity vibe to it that, you know, you weren't really sure, you weren't really sure. And then for me, the point too far was when the dad went to the other side, and you got to see it. If there are ghosts, if there are these things, then they're just part of the natural world. They're not supernatural. Correct. Um, um, But... When you see, and especially visually, when you see, oh, well, okay, there's a bunch of goopy gel, and then there's a monster sticks its face out of the closet and that sort of thing. Um, the, like, some some stories just can't be made into a visual, visual Catch-22. Yeah. Really, really reasonably can't be made into a good, good movie, I don't think. They sure tried hell, like hell, but... I know, I know. And there were lots of really good elements to it, but there's something that the visual medium can't do that a, a written story can yeah and there's there's sometimes like i said they there's that moment too far for me in in some movies and in, insidious was one of them yeah. when he went into the other realm and it's just like oh he's walking around i was with it, it that far and then it, yeah and then and i think that might have been it for you with the uh, was it when the boyfriend came back or when the tow truck driver froze uh, the, it wasn't the, or the cop froze the when the cop towed for like that seemed to be his mode like he they were finding people frozen solid like that had at least been established 
It didn't. It, that didn't Frozen bother me. Frozen solid in winter. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, that way it wouldn't seem as a mysterious death. Their car broke down and they froze, right? But what's really happened is they were killed by this evil ghost. But right. So uh, were all the murders then? Do you think of the cop after he died, or he was? I think that they we were reliving the night that he was caught, uh, which oh, was he was maybe. going over that over and over and over again. But uh, they did this was happening this time of year, and these couples kind of got caught up into it. And, that, I mean, th- this that is part how of it's it, kind of consistent in in terms of ghost lore and ghost stories that quite often the uh, I'm I'm doing finger quotes. Yeah, real ghost stories Correct. are the someone. Or some disembodied mentality repeating. Reliving the last few moments. Before expiring. As yeah. opposed to, oh, I'm dead, now I'm free. Yeah. You know, and now I can do all the shit I wanted to. Yeah. And, you know, really there'd be a lot of a lot of male ghosts around sorority houses and watching people shower. That'd be it. Yeah. You know? <laughs> um, like I say, are there some problems with the screenplay? Yes. But not enough to sink the ship. No, not at all. I thought the screenplay started out really strong. Copy that. Board the windows. Try to hide. They're coming. They? Who are they? series of graphic novels and I think from a story standpoint both the movie and the, the the comic I mean they don't do too much different with the vampires sort of creature you know they're blood suckers they they want to feast on our blood we're cattle to them uh, the mm-hmm. only thing that the approach is different is that they decide to siege a town in Alaska which has as the title would suggest a full month without sunlight so they can day and night be be just feeding off this entire town and then write it off as some kind of natural disaster. Such is the basic premise for 30 Days of Night. Um, but I think that the strength of it maybe isn't necessarily the concept of the screenplay, but much like the book, the visual presentation of the world. Really stunning. Um, really stunning. Uh, and I think that's where most of the points are going to be scored for 30 Days of Night. But I'm willing to hear a second opinion. So uh, where do you land on it? First of all, uh, I've griped about uh, opening bits before and establishing of characters, but this one, this one, it seemed like there was a reason for it. Whether it was a good reason or a bad reason is up to the individual viewer, but um, there was A, a reason for it beyond a bunch of people in a car going away on a vacation for the weekend. Mm-hmm. And there were differences in characters and there was backstory. Uh, the kind of the, I guess what... Uh, what I would call the leads, the cop and his wife. Melissa George and Josh Hartnett. Thank you. <laughs> the, the, the two. They're the sheriffs of this little 
Alaskan town, and uh, there obviously were a couple and are on the outs. Or, no, she was supposed to leave, you're right, and that missed her last flight out and is now trapped in this town for the next month with her ex and uh, not happy about it. Yes. And then shit starts to happen. Yeah. Again, the dynamic of the couple that isn't doing well that grows closer over a crisis is something that we have seen a lot. And uh, the character that Ben Foster plays, who shows up in town to tell him that death is oh, a coming. He was like, uh, what's his name? Uh, Tom Waits in one of the Yeah, he's a Renfield ones. sort of figure. Renfield, yeah, that's yeah, a he's a familiar or whatever you want to call them. But as far as that character showing up to warn them of what's coming and the heavy handedness with which that's given. It's a juicy portrayal that Ben Foster gives uh, and he, he sells it as best he can, but you can't hide the fact that this is a scene that we have seen again many times before. Well, like you had said to me at one point, it's not it's not that there are any really new stories under the sun. It's it's uh, it's about how you get there. Yeah. And uh, and what are you trying to accomplish in your movie? Yeah. And I think what they're trying to do here is sort of have like a vampire movie with teeth. Ironically, uh, hmm. the director here uh, went on to direct, I believe, uh, one or maybe even a couple of the Twilight movies which is one of the PGI's vampires are sad and romantic things that Anne Rice started and that I tends to give me an upset stomach as a rule. Um, this is You didn't not like the, the Anne Rice? You didn't like the vampire crime? I don't, I'm okay with the interview with the vampire the movie. I read the first two books, was okay with it, but I have a hard time feeling sorry for them because they feed on people. And uh, <laughs> I, I like scary vampires. I don't like mopey, everything's terrible, I gotta go fucking cry and playing a rock band and, you know like uh, I don't think they're for me you know I don't think those books are for me and I think that they're they're almost the romanticizing of vampires which is very popular these days yes uh, is fine I mean you can have variants fast zombies slow zombies uh, you know well, vampires, scary vampires, vampires or lame vampires the, the way they're being portrayed today vampires are celebrities yeah they're cool they're aloof they're pretty uh, they don't age you know, they really personify what we all look to in, in, in the entertainment industry is that this preservation of, of youth and coolness. Yeah. Uh, but going back to the, just sort of the, I think, weakening of the vampire mythos, which is very loudly recognized, right. whereas, you know, there's the beautiful girl who has to choose between a vampire boyfriend and a werewolf boyfriend. Or, or is the, the way the question was characterized to me, necrophilia or bestiality. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Uh, and, and it's not even just the Twilight franchise, which is, I think, the most guilty of it. It's just there's a whole subset of pictures that romanticize vampires. And they make a lot of money doing it. I'm just saying, that's not my bag. Uh, I like that these vampires are nasty they're wolves and violent they're and wolves and animalistic yeah and uh really scary and fast and the way that they deal with you know the killing these people another um, thing i really liked about them was that there was a sense of uh how to put it an old world culture that there was um they had their from, own language they had their own chain of command the, their own language is cool they had a chain of command they had some sort of hierarchy and they had um well whatever fashion sense it had an old world feel to it because of course they would exist for a long time and so they they existed in the modern world but started much earlier or right through it and maybe they just for them when you're immortal (laughs) uh 
Like, some people will dress in the 80s and always in the 80s. Yeah. Well, maybe these guys will always dress medieval because, like, that, that, was, that was the good time. Yeah. You know, that's, that's when we looked really good. And you know what? Medieval will come into fashion again in another 2,000 years. Yeah. But they just, they're, they're not going to throw that stuff out of the closet. They're not going to send it to uh, Goodwill. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I agree with you. I do like the idea that they are, they're not, I, I, think, I think the thing that you're talking about uh, that's not for you is the humanization of a an apex predator that uses humans as its prey. Yeah. They wouldn't anthropomorphize us. They wouldn't, right? right? That's And that's what makes them satisfying, because they're just your food. Yeah. Or they would be crazy to, you know, think of us as anything more than food, because they would go mad, or they would have to... Well, then they all become vegan, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, and get even more pale. Yeah, and more lame. Oh, I'm a vampire, but I just, you know, yeah. eat raw steak. Does no. this sweater make me look fat? Yeah, like, exactly. You, really, really. I but I did like. I want... I'm so bored and unhappy. Oh. <laughs> it's like a stake in my heart. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> uh, uh, dude. So, but one thing, going to sort of a technical thing, uh, or maybe more of a, a plot thing, the uh, the first place they attacked the um, communications tower. I think yeah, the, the the electrical point, the generator for the town. I think they had all those gas canisters. But I thought it. they also had a RF, uh, like a microwave. It was also a microwave tower. Okay, right. So they took that out first, and maybe that's what that Renfield character does: is he goes ahead, yeah. and susses out the area. And they'd obviously made preparations. All the cell phones being stolen and destroyed. All of the dogs being killed. So right. They couldn't even dog sled out. Was that why, or is it because the dogs are an early warning? Or they would warn them they're coming. Either or, it was just anything that they any any advantage that they might have been able to edge that was already being chipped away even before the sun went down for the final time. Right. Um, and th- that's a lot of what the first, what they're seeding into the first third of the movie when we're getting to know our characters. And I, and I like that again because it didn't just happen all of a sudden that uh, you knew something was going on but you didn't see them right away. Yeah. And the first time you saw them, what a beautiful series of shots. <laughs> that overhead... That moving overhead over the town, yeah. When they're when they're running out, because first of all, like if you've ever been up high and looked down on people walking, yeah. we look really funny, yeah. When, when we're walking, because basically we're falling, we're, it's a controlled fall. You yeah. lean forward and take a step, well, it, and it looks really bizarre. And that whole thing, uh, and just the madness of it, the mayhem and the chaos. I've got a real appreciation for whoever choreographed that that whole thing, and and the move and then there's this and some people get away and some don't because a thing jumps out of the alley on them that's that overhead shot I just love it and like that really whole do. melee sequence that, that that's the payoff for the first 25 or so minutes of the movie which you know some people would argue oh, come on get to the blood and guts you guys uh, I'm, I'm more patient than some but uh, <laughs> uh, but once that worm turns it turns huge mm-hmm. I think probably two thirds of the town is wiped off the board right away and then it becomes this siege then it comes them moving from house to house and 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 ousting the the lone survivors or the people who are starting to slowly band together and then there was the mr cooper yeah of course but there there is that siege element to it where this is kind of taking the zombie element and and or sorry the vampire element and zombifying it because that's basically what it turns into they're being sieged there's no relief so they're boarding themselves up into whatever obscure corner and trying to wait wait this out um oh in a creepy scene when they send that that one kid out as bait yeah yeah uh, that was that was well affected and 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 again like i said like there's there's the mindless monster and then there's a crafty one that has had 
way more centuries than we have to develop their stratagems and to to get good at at mining the blood ore of a town, right? Danny Houston plays sort of the big bad, the head of the invading vampire posse or whatever you want to call the gang of uh, vampires that, that, that's eating this town. I just say he usually plays a lot more sort of straight lawyer type uh, roles. And he kind of surprised me how much he kind of brought the evil and the, the uh, you know, he was fairly intimidating. Yeah, uh, yeah. There was uh, the, the bit that sort of gave to me, and there was, what I liked was, like I said possibly previously, there was, uh, there was a hint of the backstory, but not too much. Mm-hmm. Um, and the sense that they had, I, I, I guess there would be, I'm okay with being sort of, there being analogs between the vampires and the humans, yeah. as long as they're not just immortal humans. And there was the sense of they have their culture, they have their own policies. Uh, for example, when the one girl got injured, uh, the one vampire girl got injured, and he says, uh, what, is, what is it? What is broken must be destroyed, or yeah. something like that. If they're damaged to a certain degree, they're just not good enough anymore. Yeah, yeah. So, so out you go. And uh, again, that was a hint at there being a deeper, more complex or more defined culture, but it, it, it didn't go on and on and on about it. Yeah. And, and I, I liked those sorts of little bits where there would be, you know, not, not necessarily spirituality or religion to them, but there's, there's a, uh, there is a moral code, however brutal and inhuman it might be, and appropriately inhuman because they're not. <laughs> it's actually kind of curiously... Uh unattended the whole sort of religious aspect of it uh, I mean whether or not they believed in vampires that the day before when the vampires showed up and started killing people they probably did and I don't think much thought to like things like crucifixes or preaching or anything exactly like that is really even they, they were just I mean as far as that goes there's kind of a um, like I was saying before about supernatural versus natural these are beings uh, that exist obviously by virtue of the fact that they exist and I'm not going to assume that there are some uh, spiritual rules that govern them. Right. Govern them. I'm just going to hide out, and, <laughs> yeah. and and hopefully the whole sunshine thing is true. Yeah, which was more or less it. Um, I think that uh, a flaw to this, and maybe it's a flaw in the book, but I think it's one of those things that's more satisfying in comic form than than in film. Uh, and this is something you run into a lot when you adapt movies. I think that Superman in the blue tights works fine on the page, but seeing the blue tights is weird. That's why X-Men got movie. away from the... Uh... They made conscious decision to do that, and I think it's a wise one. Um, Kick-Ass, the same sort of idea. The idea of a little girl who's a professional assassin works in the panels of a comic book. But when you see this sweet little girl dealing all this death, uh, it's hard to know how to take it and how much fun we're having, you know. But again, I, I think that in the crazy world of a comic book, that stuff is more agreeable. Like I say, with the tights and the thing, and the thing that that really worked in the comic book that doesn't in the movie, even though it's shockingly faithful, I think is the final confrontation between Ivan and the head vampire. Uh, Ivan's been bitten, so or, or or he he injects himself with vampire blood to give right. himself strength. Yeah. They have a big confrontation, and right as the fight's about to shot, start, basically, he drives his fist 
basically right through the creature's face, obliterates it. There's been all this setup for this being the big bad, so you're expecting a fight. And I kind of understand sort of the choices of sort of, we didn't see that coming. But I gotta say, well, seeing that large, you know, painted illustration in the comic book, it, it seemed like a big climactic moment. And in the movie, it felt anticlimactic. The ending of this, the dispatchment of the big bad, like I said, didn't feel like a climax. It felt like an anticlimax. And I kept on waiting for the big moment that the, the, of blah. And it ended up, I guess, being, you know, the lighting of the fires and the sun finally coming up on the last day. But And was it that... Uh, really, the movie peaked for me on the initial attack on the town. Like you were talking about that, that, that sequence. Was, that was really... A, well, and that's they were kind of doomed by their own success yeah. in a way because that was really for me as well. That was really an incredible series of visuals. That scene and a scene a little bit before, or just before it happens, actually, where a, a, a vampire runs down a moving car. They 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 speed away and they figure oh we're away and then they realize no that fucking thing is chasing and then no all of a sudden it's on the car and still trying to get at them again they made vampires scary and like thank you yes <laughs> for that yes um, so yeah. so like oh another one got away I'm like yeah I can catch this I'm supernatural yeah um, but I do think it's a problem if your movie peaks forty minutes into it and I I think that that might have happened here. I still think, again, it's a good movie. I just, I think, I gotta acknowledge it's got some problems. <laughs> Ugliest sin out here. It's pure white nothingness. Where's my welcoming party? You doing? <laughs> we need to talk, you and me. You don't need the others. I'm not going to sign something just because you need me to. That's the wrong answer. The world we grew up in is changed forever. There is no way home. What's happening? Okay, last but not least, uh, I don't think, uh, is Larry Fessenden's The Last Winter. I like he's credited here, director, editor, and producer, and I believe co-writer of this film. So his hands are all over it. He also plays a very, very small role in the movie. He has, I've talked about him before, uh, on top of having his own sort of career of directing a lot of solid horror movies, he tends to show up in little acting roles a lot of the time. He, he often will do one-scene roles where he dies. It happens again and again in the Session 9 and then the Brave One and You're Next. He's like in it for a scene and then he's dead type of guy. But uh, he, He's one of those people, sometimes people will recognize him without recognizing him. They're like, that guy, I've seen that guy before. Before this, he'd uh, written and directed a film called Habit, which is a sort of vampire movie, and another one called Wendigo. Um, exploring, not unsurprisingly, the Wendigo mythos. Um, and his movies are very atmospheric. He's, he's, a, he's definitely a horror filmmaker, but he is not, you know, this isn't Friday the 13th, this isn't Nightmare on Elm Street. He wants to kind of work your nerves. He's into the atmospheric, spook you out, get under your skin. I would go with that assessment. Yeah. Yes. This was this was certainly within the scope of what you just said. <laughs> yeah. That's what he's going for. But I think that I would prepare people going into this. This isn't a carnival ride funhouse where there's a ghost jumping out out of every corner or, you know, where 
there's a lot of easy, obvious answers. Like, this is a movie that is as much felt as well. <laughs> she, it's, it's, it, it's going for sort of the visceral experience. And as far as giving that idea of isolation and sort of starting with the camaraderie that, that, that is bred in all these people that live in this sort of harsh environment in these little, little houses and sort of breaking that down to sort of the other extreme of when cabin fever, I guess they call it, when people spend too much time together. And this is also augmented by the fact that they're, it's an oil company and they're going to do some drilling and uh, they're up in the, you know, frozen tundra. And Far things, north somewhere. They're up north somewhere and things are starting to melt and weird shit is starting to happen. Um, oh, you were wondering if it was like maybe eco-horror or Well, like that's that. the idea, I think, is that uh, something is thawed out in the melt and is, is being something that we used to be here, but it wasn't for a long time, is back. And either that or you can interpret it, depending on how far you want to go down this trail, as finally the Earth is trying to fight back against this horrible virus that is humanity, <laughs> which is doing all these ter terrible things. However you want to interpret the movie. That's one of the great things and valuable things about, I think, most, if not all, of Larry Fessenden's work, is that you can look at it from a supernatural perspective, or you can interpret it another one. Um, I think in this one, the dots are pretty connected conclusively that there was some spooky stuff happening. But, yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> um, that's credible. Uh, but I think it's the journey here, and um, really good cast. Uh, Kevin Corrigan's in here. Connie Nelson, who's uh, been rising for her work in Friday Night Lights and uh, American Horror Story and things like this. Ron Perlman, Hellboy himself, <laughs> is sort of the big man in charge. And like I say, James LaGrosse is this uh, sort of more environmentalist guy who's come here to assess damage and... It, it seems increasingly obvious that he wants to stop the drilling. And he's not very welcome as a result. No. Certainly not by the Ron Perlman character. No. And most, most people just want to get the job done and go home, do their however many months and, and get home. You know, this is a paycheck job for them. But things start going awry. Uh, I thought I thought there were those great whiteout scenes at the beginning and where there was uh, the sky was white, the ground was white, and there was no horizon. Again, in terms of uh, the disorientation of, of an isolated environment, captured that really well. Right. Captured that really well. And again, that was the sort of thing. It's a visual medium. Yeah. And uh, uh, I liked the authenticity of their the raccoony kind of snow faces, or the They're reverse the raccoon. Yeah. Because you've got the glasses on, and for the rest of it, the sun is bouncing off the snow and into their face. I liked the, uh, the ruddy complexions. Uh, I, I don't know if that was necessarily by choice or a, a, a budget issue or if the, the movie makeup, definitely felt authentic. I didn't believe there was, there was a real it. authenticity to that yeah. and that I, I really enjoy that and it, it, it made it uh, as much as you can make this type of story real that went a long way towards it. Yeah. Um, the, the visuals are right there and they you know they were real looking people. And they had real agendas, like you mentioned, the the sort of more environmental, environmentally oriented individual shows up, and and then there's real tension between those people. Yeah, uh, I I I did enjoy that setup. That was not the uh, cute college kids going on a weekend no. vacation that runs amok. We uh, don't see these people all the time, and these people are fairly interesting, and we yeah. understand everybody's sort of motivation. We Char characters were pretty well developed, you know, and they were they were individuals without being so so comically diametrically opposed 
that they were they were unbelievable. Yeah. You know, there was a, a shared common sort of humanity to them with with varying agendas and I I found a, a bit of a realism to that 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 drew me in because that's that's the sort of thing I think is is for me most effective is supernatural things happening to natural people right, right? or good things happen or bad things happening to, to good, good people, people right yeah. Everybody has their own biases in this. Ron Perlman's character is not going to believe that anything crazy is going on because it's all, you know, people go wiggy in the north and this guy's looking for an excuse to shut us down and he's just going to exploit this tragedy. Like, uh, he's not, he is the Cooper figure, Ron Perlman, but uh, it, it is somewhat motivated and he's not a complete irredeemable prick. He makes a lot of bad calls and that is his right because he's in charge. His calls aren't based on a rationality, though. They're based on a very rational, if if um, not entirely supportable, profit motive. Yeah, it's uh, it's and it's pretty straight ahead. Like there's nothing there's nothing really uh, difficult about that. And know. he's honest about it. You know? Yeah. Oh he's, yeah. He's not necessarily altruistic <laughs> in any respect in, in that way. Not really political about a, it. <laughs> yeah. I also get a feeling with the James Lagros character is like he wants to shut this place down, and he's right to shut this place down. But he was going to shut this place down. Like he came there. He, with he that. came there yeah. to shut it down. As every way as 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 the Ron Perlman character had his own biases. So does the James Lagros. So they both have a part to play in the progressive chaffing that comes between them. And because, again, we keep on going back to Night of the Living Dead analogies, is that in this situation, they need to work together, and they can't. They fail utterly at that. Uh, it, it works in sort of a psychological, sociological sort It's of a good element. slow burn. Um, I also want to give it big points, because it, it's in that sort of comfortable crowd of spooky movies like Session 9 or The Shining. Because it's scary before the scary stuff before starts Before you see anything... It, the movie is already creepy and well settling into you yeah. before anything really scary happens. Just the shot, the faraway shot of that lone shack in the middle of fucking nowhere is disturbing. There's something inherently disturbing about it. The shrill call of that crow flapping inside that room, uh, you know, uh, it's unnerving and scary. And yeah. then uh, yeah, the evil in it or the enemy in it remains kind of mysterious, almost intangible for more or less the entire movie. I think... <coughs> you think it becomes tangible at any point? Well, I think there's a couple times where we actually might have got a legit glimpse of it. But again... Glimpse. Yes, glimpse. But it's never explained. Like you were saying, is it the Earth striking back? Yeah. Or is it... Uh, dead spirits of some kind or is it like the, it, it was or really it left the hallucinations very, of a man who is very likely dying because you can also interpret that when we're seeing it well <laughs> well until until the very end of the movie well, there, not until the very end um, there's there was that videotape that the the first guy that died left behind right the, the fa again the found found tape kind of thing right. and that thing that came up behind him Right. Or seemed to, and very ethereal, and maybe it was just snow, but they all saw it. Yeah. So uh, the the group hallucination at that point is a hard sell. Kind of goes out the window. Yeah. So it seems like there's plus uh, a hallucination wouldn't have left that guy dead. Yeah. Oh, maybe he froze. He to froze death. to death. He was out in the middle of. Yeah, and then no we all had naked. a group hallucination. So let's yeah. get back to drilling. You know. Yeah. Well, that and that and I got to say that. That shot, that scene of that thing coming up over his shoulder, yeah. that was probably one of the spookiest things out of all six movies that I saw. Mm -hmm. That was 
That because it was kind of there and gone. And Ron Perlman saw it clearly. And you know why we know he saw it? Because he destroyed the tape as yes. soon as it was yeah. over. <laughs> right? Because he didn't want to have supernatural to... business interfering with my. If he destroyed it and never saw it again, he can tell himself he was seeing things and continue on his sort of path, right? Well, yeah. Well, if that he doesn't... has to sit down and wrestle with this and legitimately talk about it, he's not going to have a lot of stable ground. <laughs> I'm hoping that people listening have seen the film, but what we're actually making reference to is that uh, this kid, who is the newbie of the group and uh, uh, the son of a close friend of Ron Perlman, uh, starts going crazy and he wanders out of the their sort of little survival area, stark naked in the middle of the night, and just basically walks to his death, as far as they know, until they find that that vi- video. Um, so he's also personally invested because he's got to make the phone call to this guy who. You know, originally he set up his son with a sweet summer job, and now he's got to call a guy and tell him his son went crazy and is dead. Yeah, there's nothing fun about that. There was a there was an irresponsible paucity of uh, of gratuitous nudity in the movie. Usually, <laughs> usually these sorts of things have uh, a little more nudity, uh, and uh, I, I thought that was really dreadful of them not to <laughs> not to really leverage that. No fair. Yeah, they just. They spent more time on the story than on <laughs> random acts of nudity. How yeah, yeah, that was. Uh... <laughs> this isn't that. Like I said, this movie is not about tits and gore. If you're looking for tits and gore, I will escort you to other uh, <laughs> other films. No, uh, but I, I did like I did like the way things weren't explained very yeah. well, and and uh, there are lots of movies and lots of stories where it could be this or it could be that, and it's never explained. But as the audience or the reader it is important that i have a sense that it is definitely one or the other yeah and i think i think if the author or screenwriter doesn't him him or herself doesn't know what the rules of the world are i do think it comes out in the writing yeah and is somehow less satisfying and i don't i don't need it explained to me that it's definitively this or definitively that it's but i have to know i have knows. to know that it is either one or the other yeah and but if someone just does it because they're copping out mm-hmm. i think that does come through in the writing and i think that's horribly dissatisfying and i i i, I think an audience to a large extent is, uh, senses it you know, we we kind of get the sense that there there are rules to the universe, but we don't necessarily understand them all the time. But we like to think that there are rules, and so when you're creating this fantasy world, this fictional world, there have to be we have to think there are rules, even if we don't understand them, even if we don't get them. And if there, that incompleteness is there, I think it comes through in the writing and the execution, and we sense it. In it, this in this one, it was I think for me it was a bit too vague. For me to make that delineation, and so it was a little less satisfying as a result. I think that it's sort of pass or fail on the uh, on how you <clears throat> feel about the very ending. Um, before I get to that, though, um, just the, to, to, to spoil the very very end of the movie, I wanted to talk about another moment uh, in the movie that has always stuck with me. There's a scene it's where when Dawn runs amok. <laughs> There's a scene where the two of them are trying to get to a settlement. The James LeGros character and Ron Perlman character are trying to get to a place. And Ron Perlman has fallen through the ice and has been rescued by James LeGros, but is too cold to go on. And James LeGros has got to get over this one more hill to get to where there's more people and get help. And he's almost there when he finally gets taken 
by this force, by whatever it is. He is literally, he's picked up and he is pushed away and he's being carried far away. He's soaking wet and as he sees the lights of this town going and going farther away, he knows he is dead. And he flashes to himself as a kid running through the snow up the front steps and going through the front door of his house. He just has this little flash before he is let go and abandoned to freeze to death in the middle of nowhere. And there was something so weirdly perfect about that for me, like from that character standpoint, knowing that he was dead and that he goes to this different but much better winter landscape from his past. In that moment, I remember having the thought that this was a weirdly, and it's not Canadian made, ironically, but it felt like it was almost a quintessentially Canadian <laughs> like horror moment. Because we can all, at least I have memories of being a little kid and enjoying the outside winter wonderland and, and running inside and, you know, your nose full of snot and the light being all fucked up and weird when you go in the house. Oh, and yeah, the yeah, safe yeah. <laughs> haven of being back home after having a fun adventure outside. And that he sort of takes himself to that place in order to escape the reality of his final moments, I thought was really, really strong. <clears throat> but to go to the end of the movie, and I think this is where you get the pass or fail, and you have to ask, was there a plaster man to this? Does Larry Fessenden know what's going on, like you were talking about before? I, th I, th I think he does, and, and like I said... I'm going to give was, him the benefit of the it doubt was, it, it, was even, it was even so... That's what I mean. It was... It was I will... I, I, like, as I said, I do enjoy when it's not spoon-fed to mm -hmm. me. I don't like it, like... The, uh, okay, I'm not going to go into specific examples, mm -hmm. but I don't like it when it's spoon-fed and this is what you're supposed to think. Yeah. Um, I'm going to present... I'm going to give you the context and hopefully lead you down the garden trail, but I'm going to leave you enough leeway that m maybe you won't see what I see when I looked at this. You know, for, for example, if I'm reading... If I read a book and I go to you, Larry, this is I think is a good book, please read it, mm -hmm. as opposed to I tell you what I took away from it. Because that will change and, oh, how I read it, likely. Yeah, yeah, and and so I, I do appreciate the sort of um, entertainment genre that that does that that says here's how I uh, here was my experience. What do you think of it? And leave me the room to think about it. Yeah. Uh, again, I think this one left it a little too much open to interpretation. I suspect I, I'm leaning towards he had the rules of the universe that he'd created yeah. to build this story. We have one survivor, the Connie Nelson character, who wakes up at a, a, some sort of emergency place, a police precinct or hospital or something, and she wakes up and you believe she's safe, and then you realize that this madness, this plague of supernatural evil, madness, and Whatever actual, it is. Whatever it is. And I think there's a variety to the things that are thawing out of the... Uh, that's sort of how I choose the... But whatever it is, what they witnessed on that remote site where they were just at ground zero to a wave of uh, what I assume will be infecting the rest of the world. Like I say, the, the planet Earth is going to reject the human species like a bad organ at this point. <clears throat> some of the people go mad and some of the people get carried away by these weird antelope-looking ghost creatures. Right, um, <clears throat> right. Um, and, and how those two things reconcile themselves, I won't say that I completely understand. But what I get enough is is that Whatever thought in the ice is going to kill all of us. 
And that's what's clearly established in the last moments. The movie clearly doesn't have the budget to explore a huge global apocalypse, and Larry Fessenden isn't interested in that. He doesn't want to see the. He doesn't need to be. He He doesn't want the last winter too. Uh, He doesn't want to see the major cities trying to fight back against this evil. That's not his. He's already put whatever idea out there, and now it's time for another idea. He made the movie he wanted to make. It doesn't. uh, It didn't really like. For example, I, I guess you're kind of delving into it. This rejection or this mechanism, whatever it is. Uh, manifests itself in a variety of different ways, like like why Don went totally homicidal, yeah, and other guys just ran out naked. It and seemed to affect some people and not others. Connie Nelson, James LaGrosse, and uh, uh, Ron Perlman, they started acting a little bit hanky, but they seemed to fend off the madness better than the rest of them. Everyone else basically ended up going crazy. Or I think that was the it. one guy just randomly died of a nosebleed. Is that right? <laughs> uh, <laughs> like. Uh, so there's not a consistent thing that's going on, but I think the idea that we're to get clasp onto is that, yes, the, something came out of the thaw, whatever it is, uh, clearly supernatural, so clearly with purpose, and that purpose is to get rid of us because we've just doing too much damage. Now, that's what I took from it, and it worked enough for me. Uh, <laughs> I have, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to totally cop to being biased for Larry Fessenden. I like the man. I'm a fan of him as an actor and a writer and a director. Uh, I also think that this is an ambitious horror movie. Uh, I think that I will agree with you that it has some of the best scares of all of these movies, but it also has the fewest. But I also would argue that it stayed with me more than any of the rest of these movies, and I thought about it more than any of the rest of these movies. Hmm. I also, I just want to just give it props for originality, like period. I think it's such a rare commodity to have originality to a horror movie. All of the other movies in the list, and I like most of them quite, quite well, I can compare it to something else, you know? It's funny because this is the least amount I've written down. I think this is the most we've talked about. Absolutely. Again, I think that's further evidence to the movie's credit. That's uh, six cold horror movies that we have just reviewed, uh, which now puts us in the point where we're going to rank them. There are prizes potentially at stake here for you, brothers, so uh, uh, I'm, I'm curious to hear where you landed on this. What was your least favorite of the movie? Uh, we do come from it from, from slightly different angles. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I do go to be entertained, and I think you do too. Yeah. Uh, what we find entertaining uh, is a bit different, and for sundry different reasons. And, uh, I mean, I do, I do like the aesthetic, and I never go to a movie wanting to rip it apart. Yeah. Because if I want to rip it apart, then I don't want to see it. So I, I, I do go to be lost in, in whatever the story is, and yeah. when I'm taken out of it, then I'm critical. Right. But uh, until I am, uh, I, I, I do go to watch them and, and enjoy them as they do. But uh, you've, you've given me some different things to think about <laughs> of the movies that I've seen and ranked, but I'm still going to go with the ranking I had okay. because that's based on what I thought at the time. <laughs> and the other thing about it was uh, the six that you gave to me, it's not that there's a huge difference between one and six. Yeah. They all had their merits, and so I just I just want to throw that out there as well, that they're, there's not like the one at the bottom is just absolutely god-awful, and yeah. one of the top is a pristine bit of cinema. That's just where they ended up. 
just going to have a sip of beer here while I think about it. Okay. Just, I'll, I'll point the gun away from you if that'll make you more comfortable. So, um, I'm not going to say that there are any bad ones. Uh, and so I'm, I'm going to say least favorite. Fair enough. Was Dead Snow. Okay. And uh, now that... And again, I watched those a long time ago. And, uh, and what's more fresh with me right now is what we've just discussed. So... <laughs> That's that's maybe not where I'd rank it today if okay. I were to do it. That's where I ranked it at the time. Second least number favorite. Five, we'll number five. Number five. Yeah. Uh, was Frozen. Okay. Number four was Windchill. Well, and 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 like I said, I really liked it uh, for a lot of reasons. But uh, sometimes sometimes it's for me it's the aesthetic, and the way it looks. Yeah. Um, and I mean, story has to be foremost, but. But uh, uh, if the graphics are just jarring, again, it takes me out of it, and it's like, okay, well, that's a point against it. It's a little it. removed. Uh, third was Cold Prey. Okay. And then our runner-up was Last Winter, and number one was 30 Days of Night. That's not bad. We're pretty close, brother. We're pretty really? close. Uh, it, it, I mean, I'm, I'm not giving out any prizes today. But, <laughs> I uh, didn't think you would. <laughs> uh, I put as my least favorite to be Frozen. Now, I I say that, and I do like the movie. Um, I did find myself asking hard questions of the movie sometimes, like we talked about the cable and the issues and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, I think it's the premise, more than almost everything else, that I really like about this movie, in that, like I said, it's a, it seems like a trap that anybody could find themselves in. It could just in. be there. So there's a sense of realism to it. Yeah. yeah. So that's that's why I watched it there. So um, Ranking at number five is where I put Windchill. Again, a lot of stuff that I like about it, but I do think that, that there are some, some ouches to the screenplay. I don't know why there's, they're nameless characters. If, if I can't think of a reason, then it becomes distracting. You know? Right. And I can't. Maybe someone could tell me. Maybe someone will write me something and, and convince me why. But that is one of the main things, that and the, the, the last-minute ghost rescue. But uh, <laughs> for the most part, I, I actually was really liking this movie. Again, uh, it frustrates me to put it that low, but that's where it is. Uh, in fourth place, that's where I put Dead Snow. And again, this goes to me talking about what is this movie trying to accomplish. And I think this movie was trying to keep you engaged. You don't want to be bored at any point in this movie. And they wanted you to be, you know, like a fun, crazy, violent horror movie. And I think that they were, across the board, successful in what they set out to do. I, as a rule, like my horror movies to have some little more teeth, a little bit, be scary. Scare me if you're a horror movie. But I completely believe that there is room for the Evil Dead 2s of the world. And I think this is sort of in that canon. Uh, Coldplay made it to number three. And this is all uh, the, the production value. The execution of it is what, what really elevates it. Uh, familiar characters in a familiar place being stalked by a killer that's not completely original. But the execution is very strong. The suspense works in it. Again, what were they trying to do and how well did they achieve it? Controversially, I'm putting 30 Days of Night at number two. <laughs> um, I, I would probably not argue that it, it wasn't the best made of all these films. I think it's clearly the best executed, like, looking cinematography achievement in film. It's, it's the prettiest and flashiest of them. But um, for all the prettiest and flashy, it, it's a little emptier than maybe it seems. Did you, um, did you read the book? Or the graphic novel before you saw the movie? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, and and, and sometimes I I wonder if if um, 
I would say the same thing about the book too. It's more about the art than it is about the story. For no, me. no, no. That's that's not where I was going. But sometimes it's um, it's a matter of which one you're exposed to first. Right. Or uh, I mean, because there's there's the cliche about go see the movie, then get the book. Right. Because the book is more generally perceived to be better. Yeah. All the time, every time. But I also think that sometimes there's a there's a in music, for example, people will hear a cover song and then they'll hear the original, and then prefer the cover song, whereas people who heard the the original first will prefer the original. And sometimes I un, I wonder what effect that the the um, the initial exposure has on the decision of what's what's the best execution of it. Yeah. Like, cause I I heard uh, growing up when I did smoking in the boys room by Motley Crue right. I heard that before I heard the original they're not really that much different but I still kind of lean towards the Motley Crue one because that's your first experience yeah and yeah. so I, 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 I'm kind of curious what sort of effect that might have I mean, I'm less worried about it with graphic novels and stuff like that in the comic book medium I mean uh, it's uh, because the comics are a visual medium as well there will always be the book and the comic if they really fuck up a novel in the movie they've like just raped that novel and the way the world works now, more people are going to see the movie than they're going to read the book, and that sucks yeah. if it's a really juicy book. So, or like Catch Twenty Two, which really doesn't ever again become. I, I will defend the movie Catch Twenty Two, but I won't <coughs> say that it captures the book. <laughs> you know, I do believe that that books are books and movies are movies. I understand that things need to change, but you need to keep the essence of the book there, or else why bother? It drives me crazy when they get into big bidding wars over properties and then you know, spend millions of dollars to acquire the rights and then fail to tell the fucking story in the book. Yes. It, just, it blows my mind and it happens a lot. Anyway, yeah, so just to wrap up the list, I'm maybe showing my hand for a personal bias to Larry Fessenden, who I am a, a big fan of, but I'm giving number one sh spot to The Last Winter. I think it's the one that if you haven't seen of this list of movies that I would probably most encourage you to see. And uh, I would also love to say, uh, I'm biased, this is my wheelhouse. I like a movie that works my nerves, and I like a movie that tries something new. And I think this does both of those. It, yeah, How it did, successfully... It did, it did, it did that. Yeah. Uh, I guess we just both weighed them a bit differently. Yeah. But uh, it, it certainly did that. I will agree with you. Yeah. And how successfully is it probably going to be a matter of taste. And I will, you know, I'll say, frankly, <clears throat> I might like move this movie more than a lot of other people, too. I think it just sort of played to my tastes, you know? Yeah. I give, I give big points for originality. And uh, more people support Larry Fessenden, you know. Keep the man working. That's all I'm saying. Um, so we can finally get it right. No prizes. Sorry, brothers. <laughs> no, no, that's oh, all right. So I didn't even know there were prizes. <laughs> yeah, I'm just going to do it anyway. I'm just like, I'm confident someday someone's going to win. We've, this is episode 26, as I've said. And, episode uh, 26. I love that. And, and Only uh, one win so far out of 26 episodes. So uh, i gotta, I got to up the win. I feel like I'm playing a rigged game here. <laughs> but I, I do, do like appreciate the fact you doing that, it. And, and I don't know... It, uh, you can probably cut this out at some point, but episode 26 is a fantastic play that I got to see you in, <laughs> yep. playing Zugdish, and it won, it won uh, the fringe, the audience, the audience favorite, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah. At the, I don't know what year it was, though. Oh, God. 2000. 2000 nothing, maybe? <laughs> 2000-ish? <laughs> I don't know. But, yeah, and it, uh, a funny script and well-acted by you and and, mm. and and Kevin, Brad, Lorianne, uh, Bunch of people Aaron. these guys don't know. 
and just just really well put together. And and I I just uh, no one else could have been here. Well, no one else was here to see it. But when Larry said it was episode twenty six, I actually threw my hands up in the air because it was such an auspicious and ridiculously meaningless callback. But it was still awesome. That's what I'm all about. Meaningless callbacks. <laughs> Is there anything you would like to say to the kids on the uh, on the interwebs, or anything you want to sell? Any projects, or you want to you want to put yourself out there? Uh, if someone wanted to see a picture of your genitalia, is there a website you could... Uh... <laughs> well, I, I was going to say that, uh, I mean, I've done... Th- this is my first podcast. Well done. I broke your podcast, Jerry. Yeah. And, uh, uh, but I've done, I've done a, a, you know, a little bit of film work. I've done a little bit of voiceovers and stuff like that. And I have to say, uh, uh, to date, I've never had anyone uh, affix a mic to my lapel <laughs> and... And put the battery pack near my genitals as as kindly as you did. So thank you. I like to think I'm surprisingly gentle. Yes, yes, because you're a big dude, yeah. and uh, uh, it it just it went off like a hitch. All right, I can think of no better way to end this podcast. Thank you for doing this. So it was that episode 26 was pushed bloody and screaming out into the world. I'd like to once again thank my friend Robbie Tanner for helping me out with this episode. And uh, I will apologize if there was a few bits that felt a little choppy. A lot of beer was drank and we kind of yacked half the night away. (laughs) So cuts had to be made to this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, This is, of course, your host and random Canadian Larry Parsons. please do seek us out on Facebook and on iTunes. If you can leave a review for us there, it's really helpful in getting new people to come and listen to the show. I really appreciate all the support for Rank and Review. So if you'd like to write us and let us know how we're doing with this podcast, you can do so at rankandreview at gmail.com. That's R-A-N-K-N-R-E-V-I-E-W at gmail. And do me a favor, tell your friends.